When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Inviting Jesus into your summer and then thoughts on one of the recent Supreme Court decisions. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, flying solo on this Thursday afternoon. Glad that you're joining us today. Aubrey's off enjoying some extended 4th of July time with her family. And so uh, she'll be back with us next week, but glad that you are with us today. I literally couldn't remember what day it was. Like I was like, all right, welcome to, and in my mind, it was just the weekend. So it's Tuesday, but it's Thursday. And I'm sure that the rest of you are feeling that way as well. After the 4th of July week, hope that you had a good time. I got to get away, was away with my family and some extended family at uh, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law's cabin up in Wisconsin, where we go over the 4th of July. And it's the best. Do you have these places in your life where uh, you enter them. It might be a vacation. It might be somewhere in your home. It might be somewhere else where you enter them and your stress goes away. Like this is one of those places for me. It's cabin. Uh, it's a house out in the woods. Just kind of, it's like I tell people you go through the Dells <clears throat> out the other side and go like, 20, 25 minutes more, but they're, uh, you know, got a boat on a lake and the cat, the house is out in the woods where you can't see another soul. And I'll tell you what, if, if I'm feeling stressed, I get there and just do reading and hanging out. Kids are there with their cousins playing and it's one of those stress releases. And so hopefully you got a little bit of that over the 4th of July weekend, whether you stayed home. I was talking to a buddy whose plans fell through over 4th of July, but he even then was like, you know, we went to, to the fireworks and the parade and hung out with friends. And he's like, it was just like being on vacation. So you don't always need to get somewhere, but uh, getting somewhere is pretty nice. But, you know, most of us back to work now. So if you're work, if you're not back to work, whatever it is, hope that you've enjoyed some relaxation, enjoying the 4th of July weekend. Glad that you are with us today uh, on this Thursday. What is today? July the 6th. July the 6th. We are now... Full-fledged into the summer. Here we go. And it is good. And summer got me thinking uh, over at Christianity Today, Ted Olson, he wrote something that was almost devotional in its nature. It's an editorial, but gosh, I read it and it felt devotional. I thought it'd be a great spot to start today. It's just called this. Uh, it's actually a couple years old now that I'm looking at it. They just reposted it and it's called the risk of inviting Jesus into your summer. Can this season be one where I grow with God and with my neighbor? So again, it's called the risk of inviting Jesus into your summer. And, uh, he, he talks about this. He quotes Tozer, who says the period of summer is the full uh, period of full power when life multiplies and it is hard to believe that it can never, uh, that it can ever and it's this idea that summer's just different. And then when I read this headline, I was like, oh, are you going to make me feel guilty for relaxation? Are you going to be make me feel guilty? Oh, your summer needs to be a mission field where you can, as he says, grow with God and with your neighbor. And, and I'm like, oh, summer's doesn't feel slothful to me. It 
feels different, but it doesn't feel lazy. And he talks about that, how some of us in the summer, it gets busier. And so then he gets to the crux of it. He says, the question we want to ask this summer then is not what more can you add this summer? Rather, it's this. What are you looking forward to? What brings you joy about this season? And how can it be more of a blessing to you and to others? What provisions, he asks, come in summer that can be harvested for a lifetime? And then he gives some examples. But this is great, not just for summer, but at all times of life, but for for our purposes here talking about summer. This is a great reminder that the summer's different. And anytime there's something different, we should ask ourselves, How can this be used to further the kingdom? How can this be used to make disciples, to uh, be a messenger of reconciliation? How can this be used by God uh, in profitable and kingdom ways? So he says, he gives some examples. He says, perhaps you love summer's longer days. Seize them. It's much easier to start or rekindle a habit of morning prayer when awakened by songbirds and early sunlight. Or perhaps you're a student who sees summer as the joyous season of finally sleeping in. He said this might be a time to reflect on what intentional Sabbath days of rest can mean for you or in finding special unhurried times of reading scripture before you're out of your PJs. Maybe you love grilling. He says, I love grilling, by the way. Just love grilling. Pull your portable grill, he says, to the front yard some Friday evening and invite passing neighbors to enjoy some free hot dogs or burgers. Or are you too introverted for that kind of project? Invite that one family you've wanted to know better for an informal backyard barbecue. So he he importantly says, this is not a to-do list. One person's gardening joy can be another person's yard work burden. The idea here is not to come up with additional chores or to indulge in self-improvement campaign. Early summer is full of wishes and ideas. And he says, he basically says, we don't live with intentionality. And so I thought, again, this would be a great spot to start. What are intentional things you could do specifically in the summertime that may open the door to mission, may open the door to kingdom, may open the door to connection with neighbor, family, friends, may do all of these types of things. Uh, At our church, we do things that are different in the summer that we are not able or do not do the rest of the year. What are some of those things you can be doing? Uh, Olson ends this way. Inviting God into your summer joys is a risky endeavor. Summer is a time of growing and of harvesting and growing in the Lord can bring its own pains, even as it brings greater joys. But we needn't go looking for greater toil this summer. If it comes, God will provide opportunity for joy in it. All we need to do here in these weeks of warmer, brighter days is to pray, to prepare and to plan. We invite God into our hikes, our picnics, our stargazing, our kite flying, our hammock reading, our seashell beach combing, our zoo trips, and our campfires as we ask him what summer joys he has invited us to. Again, I found this uh, uh, to be uh, devotional in nature. Like, because this is not about summer. This is about living with intentionality. At our church, we will often say we are called to be everyday missionaries wherever we live, work, and play. And in the summertime, where we live, work, and play can look different than, say, in the middle of winter when everybody's in school, everybody's working, everybody's in their homes because it's below zero outside. So really, Olson's not saying 
summertime. What can you do as a missionary? Instead, he's saying, what does intentional living look like in the summertime? And his examples are great. Can you grill with a neighbor? Can you, uh, you know, use the longer days to uh, do things that you wouldn't normally do when you sleep in, when you've got more free time, can you use it to be in the word, uh, to be in prayer? What does it look like as in Chicago that we can actually be outside and not be uh, just cooped up in our rooms, right? In our houses. Cause there does come that time in the Chicago winters where none of us go outside and we don't see our neighbors for weeks, if not months, but summer is not one of those times. So here from Olson, Ted Olson here at Christianity today, uh, not a guilt. What are you going to do with your summertime to be a missionary? No, it's opportunity, but more than that, it's intentionality. What would intentionality look like for you? this summertime and go and step out in faith, step out, take that risk and go do it. Well, glad you're with us as we are midsummer. We're enjoying summer and we're glad that you're with us. Coming up next, major Supreme Court cases uh, within the last week were decided at the end of June. And I want to talk about the one specifically uh, about First Amendment about a wedding website, about LGBTQ, uh, and what are the things that that are protected by the First Amendment and that are not. We're going to discuss Supreme Court next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Before the 4th of July holiday, but after we had taken some time to, uh, took some time off, there were all of those uh, decisions made by the Supreme Court, right? They come at the end of the month, the end of basically there before they go on to recess. And uh, there were a couple major ones, one of them uh, about affirmative action that I'd like to talk about another time because um, got some thoughts on that one. But but they struck down the Harvard and the University of North Carolina admissions practices and a lot of debate over that. But someday, oh gosh, if you've never listened to Malcolm Gladwell's stuff about colleges and endowments and this and that, I would encourage you now at, um, what's he at? Revisionist History. I listened to one this week. He actually, uh, I'm going to plug a place that I love dearly. He just did a, a podcast with the president of Hope College where my daughter goes. He's uh, Matthew Scogan, who's been on this show before. Uh, about the amazing stuff Hope is doing to try to change the way college admissions work. You can find that at Revisionist History. But um, I think Gladwell and others make a great point that the true crime in, uh, regardless of what you think about affirmative action, that the legacy stuff over at particularly places like Harvard and Princeton and Yale and others is crazy. It's just nuts. If you're not uh, familiar with it, you got to go check out what is all that legacy stuff and how does that play in. But there is a major affirmative action one that I want to talk about at another time. But the main one that stood out to a lot of people headlined at NPR this way. Supreme Court says First Amendment entitles web designer to refuse same sex wedding work. And I want to do something here. Uh, I, I want to read how they frame it. And then I want to go over to what our friend David French says. So here's what they wrote at NPR. Here's the lead. Uh, by a six to three vote, the court sided with Lori Smith, a Colorado web designer who is opposed to same sex marriage. She challenged the state's public accommodations law, claiming that by requiring her to serve everyone equally, 
the state was unconstitutionally uh, enlisting her in creating a message she opposes. And they said on the Friday, the Supreme Court agreed with her. Now, you go over to the New York Times and David French wrote this. And this is why I want to read this, because David French was part of the people who filed this. And so he said, David Fred said, I'm mostly done with my legal career. In 2015, I hung up my courtroom spurs and moved into the world of writing and thinking for a living. But every now and then I reenter the fray. Last year, I wrote an amicus brief in the case called 303 Creative versus Alenis, arguing that a wedding website designer had a First Amendment right not to speak. And on Friday, the Supreme Court reached a decision in the case ruling for the website designer and holding that the state of Colorado could not require her to design websites that, for example, celebrated same-sex weddings. This case was not, as it has been widely described, about whether a website designer could refuse gay customers. That would be both illegal and immoral, French writes, and I would not participate in such a case. Indeed, the party stipulated that the web designer, Lori Smith, was, quote, willing to work with all people, regardless of classification such as race, creed, uh, sexual orientation and gender. And she will gladly create custom graphics and websites for clients of any sexual orientation. Uh, she was simply not willing to design websites that contain messages that violated her religious beliefs. The case was not about whether a business could refuse to provide goods or services, but whether it could refuse to generate specific expressions with which it disagreed. Here, the parties agreed that all of the graphic and website design services Miss Smith provides are expressive and that websites and graphics Miss Smith designs are original customized creations that contribute to the overall messages her business conveys. And French says this, as a result, no one should think that the Supreme Court sanctioned, say, whites only businesses or permitted a business owner to slam the door shut on gay and lesbian customers. Indeed, the majority opinion was written by the same justice, Neil Gorsuch, who wrote the majority opinion in Bostick versus Clayton County, which extended the reach of uh, Title 12 to protect gay and lesbian Americans from employment discrimination and so he he says the 303 creative case was instead about compelled speech when could the government require a commercial provider of expressive services to say things she found objectionable could the government compel a portrait artist to paint a heroic picture of a white supremacist could the government compel a speechwriter to pen an anti-gay screed on behalf of a right-wing politician. And he goes on and on and on over here at the New York Times. As you can imagine, it got a lot of, uh, of talk about the New, of the New York Times. I want to make two points about this really fast. The first is this. The way this has been reported and the way French talks about it here as somebody on the inside are like 180 degrees different. This raises the, the bar here again for me of Hey, you don't need, you, you got to do the background work and reading and understanding before just going to Twitter and Facebook and firing off. If you had believed everything that was written on Twitter after this particular um, decision came down, you would have thought it's exactly what French is saying it's not about being able to say no to these people and no to these people and we're moving backwards and it's just discrimination and all this. And so I was challenged in reading this of going, man, I, all the information's out there. We have to go read before we comment. 
We have to do the research before we just believe what the next talking head on MSNBC or Fox News or whatever tells us. Go read it. Do the research. Understand it. Because there's usually a lot more nuance, whether it be affirmative action, whether it be this case uh, as it pertains to this website or whatever else it might be. Do the work. Secondly, as Christians, I agree uh, with what David French says, that if we're looking for a reason to just say, I'm not going to serve or um, allow gay people or this or that into my place of business or whatever else, he called it illegal and immoral. That should not be our goal. The question is, uh, what ultimately, how do we as Christians respond or act uh, towards our LGBTQ neighbors and friends and coworkers and whatever else. And, and I would suggest that, that the call of scripture is not be nice, not be caring, not lay down our lives only to those that we agree with or for whom we have similar worldviews. But instead, the way of Jesus is that, in fact, it is the people that we disagree with most or uh, who may dislike us the most that we lay down our lives for, that we dine with, that we reach out to and care for. So if you're like taking a victory lap over this uh, incorrect reading here going, Ooh, this is a, a win for the Christians. That's not what this is about in that they are not the enemy. That's what we as Christians need to see here. We are called in the way of Jesus. And this is not a tribal thing where we only love those who agree with us, who believe the same things we do, who speak this. That's just not how it worked with Jesus. And as Christ followers, we are, we, we follow the ways of Jesus and how we interact with our culture. Don't, don't get into the talking head thing where it's just like, I'm just going to, uh, pontificate and I'm just going to uh, end up on the side of only those I agree with. And I'm going to try to defeat those I disagree. That's not what this is about. So go back and read, understand what this was about, understand what the affirmative action case was about. Don't believe the talking heads who are like, Oh, the court is this. Oh, they're trying to roll back. That's not what this was about. But then ask your own heart questions. Am I trying to live out the ways of Jesus? even with the people who may not agree with me, who may not like me, uh, who may uh, look at the world differently than I do. If Christians, if the church can increasingly live that out, uh, I think we will increasingly see people attracted uh, and, and intrigued by who this Jesus is. Well, coming up next, Justin Taylor over at Twitter had a fascinating tweet from 30 years ago. Uh, that's basically this. The more things change, the more they stay the same. We're going to do that here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Justin Taylor over at, uh, on Twitter, over at Twitter, which, how about how Twitter's falling apart right now? I don't know if you're on there th- on threads right now. Feels like they, they got 10 million users yesterday. It's kind of uh, Mark Zuckerberg's through Instagram threads is uh, kind of, his new thing that's supposed to come right up against Twitter and Twitter is breaking down right now with Elon Musk and everything. So anyway, we'll see what happens in the social media world. But Justin Taylor, uh, who is a blogger over at Between Two Worlds, and uh, he, he writes a lot in the Christian world. 
He said this. He retweeted something. He said, theologian David Wells writing 30 years ago about what ails the Christian church. So David Ailes, in a book called God in the Wasteland, in 1994, said this. First of all, I can't believe 1994 is 30 years ago. I was a junior in high school. And uh, doesn't 1994 seem like it was just yesterday? Here's 1994, right? The OJ chase and the OJ trial. Uh, 1994, we're all watching Friends and Seinfeld, and man, does not feel that long ago. Okay, why'd I think of the OJ trial first? That was weird. Uh, He wrote this, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today, and by today he means 30 years ago when he was writing, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its wounds. The fundamental problem, he writes, in the evangelical world today, again in 1994, is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. Boom. And why I wanted to read this is because what he claims are the problems 30 years ago were probably the problems 30 years before that and are certainly the problems today 30 years later. But we put so much of our energy towards those things he talked about, inadequate technique, insufficient organization, antiquated music. We say if we could just fix the way the church functions, if we could fix the music, if we could just be a little bit more compelling, if we could just be a little bit more relevant, none of those things are bad. But he says it's like putting a bandage on a bullet wound, that these aren't at the core the issues. He said, those squander the church's resources, bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that is spilling from its true wounds. What's he saying there? Our issues run so much deeper. They run upon our view of God. He says the fundamental problem in 1994, again, still today, is that God rests too inconsequentially about the church. We've lost our awe. We don't look at God anymore, that painting with a broad brush, and go, oh my goodness, if I could just focus myself on him, if if our church could just be about God, if it could just be in awe of God, these other things are going to take care of himself. And he says instead, God's truth is too distant. That our, our our lives are not grounded in the truth of God that we find in his word, that, that it's too distant. His grace too ordinary. Oh, that one stings. When's the last time I looked upon the grace of God and I said, oh my gosh, but, but for a sinner, uh, what do I deserve? But instead that God's grace to even me is so unbelievable. It's the falling down of Peter when he is called with the miraculous catch of fish and Peter says, uh, get away from me, Jesus, because I, I can't live. Uh, I, I'm uh, You are God, and, and being in the very presence of God, I will die. This one really stings. His grace 
is too ordinary. We've gotten used to it. Have you just gotten used to the grace of God? Have you lost sight of the scandal of God's grace in your life? That while we were yet sinners, you and me, Christ died for us. His judgment, Wells writes, is too benign. His judgment is too benign. Uh, We've lost sight of the fact that yes, even me who has been in church for a long time and who works as a professional Christian, even you who's uh, diligently been and read your Bible and been to church for the last 50 years, even you are deserving of God's judgment. And that's where it goes back to the grace being too ordinary, but also that there are those in our lives who still face that judgment. The wages of sin is death. That that's what is deserved. Gospel is too easy. I just say this prayer and all is good. I just raise my hand and that's all I got to do. I just walk down the aisle and everything is covered. No, the gospel, God's saving work through his son, Jesus Christ, costs so much. And it is, it is worthy. It is, it is, it is a daily uh, surrendering. It's not a get out of jail free card. It is not a fire insurance thing, but it is now defines who I am in every aspect of our lives. And then he writes, and his Christ is too common. Jesus, we've, we've, we've just lost the scandal again of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That when Jesus walked on this earth, people were longing to get near him. They were trying to touch him. They were trying to get near him. Friends, I read this the other day and I was just cut to the core. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. This is what is wrong with the evangelical world today. And it was in 1994. It was in 1964. It was, and just keep going back. And it, it's, it's our issue. It's not about technique and organization and music and strategy, and vision, all of those things are important. But if we as Christians and as the big C church can keep a big view of God, a big view of his truth, a big view of the grace he has shown us, a big view of the judgment deserved and the gospel shown to us, and most of all, a big view of who Jesus is and what he has done for us, then the church, our lives are going to be changed. Uh, and, and it, lives are going to be changed as people come in contact with this church and with this Jesus. Mm, such good word. I, I'm going to need to marinate uh, on this because it is, uh, it's so true. May the church be a place of awe and of power. Uh, I hope you have a great evening tonight. I'll be back again tomorrow from 4 until 6 p.m. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. What's up, sandwich heads? Today on Steve-O Sandwich Reviews, we've got the tips and tricks to the best sandwich order. And it all starts with this little guy right here. Pepsi Zero Sugar. 
partial to pastrami. Craving a Cubano? Yeah, sounds delicious, but boom! Add the crisp, refreshing taste of Pepsi Zero Sugar and cue the fireworks. Lunch, dinner, or late night, it'll be a sandwich worth celebrating. Trust me, your boy's eaten a lot of sandwiches in his day, and the one thing I can say with absolute fact... Every bite is better with Pepsi.